The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 8 through 24. The word of God speaks to us. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word to us. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I get the joy of serving both as one of the pastors here and as the person who gets to open up this deeply meaningful ancient text with you today. Pray with me over this text. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, we're in a season where we need a fresh dose of hope. We're in a season where we need to be reminded of who we are and who you are. Meet us in this text. Fill us with more of yourself. Send us out of this room with a fresh taste of your goodness, your kindness to us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. As you've already heard, this Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. Advent, a season in the church calendar characterized by quiet waiting. And therefore, nothing could be more un-American than Advent. As most of you know, Ben Franklin once famously said, against the entire testimony of the Christian scriptures, God helps those who help themselves. Well, if that's true, our forefathers thought, 
And if we want God's help, well, then we better get busy. For so, so for generations, Americans have been a very busy people, but not a very quiet people. We've aimed our massive energy and ingenuity at all the problems outside of us, and we've cultivated very little awareness of the profound problems inside us. We're going to see here in Genesis 3 that according to the ancient Christian scriptures, something is very wrong inside all of us, and only God in Christ can put it right again. We're not ourselves. Genesis 3 teaches us that our souls are all out of joint. And we get a hint of this as we read the news, and now more than ever, we can all wonder what's wrong with them pretty easily. It's harder to wonder what's wrong with us. It's hardest to wonder what's wrong with me. And as most of us have already experienced, if you've lived long enough, that first moment when we realize that something's profoundly wrong with us, our first temptation is to hide. But the good news is that here in Genesis 3, we're going to meet a God who, in spite of our hiddenness, is kind enough to bring to us his pursuing presence. Look again at verses 8 through 10. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We see God walking in the garden or orchard at the time of the day when the cool evening breezes are blowing peacefully through the leaves, the time of day where you take a walk in a leisurely way with a close friend and talk about personal things together. And yet in response, verse 8, the man and his wife hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Our hiddenness is an instinct. Our hiddenness is an instinct, but it wasn't always this way. Everyone in this room, sadly, was born into this world never knowing what it's like to not carry with us at all times like a reflex, the instinct to hide from God. Until Jesus came, these are the only two people who ever lived who felt no fear when they heard the voice of God. Until now. What if all of our commonly accepted statements about God seeming to hide himself from us miss the deeper reality that we see here in this text that most of the time we're the ones doing the hiding. What do children do in a healthy home when they hear the sound of their dad coming home? They run to throw their arms around him and soak up his love. They can't wait to close the distance between them. They're completely unselfconscious in their joy and their hunger to just be with their dad. But here, something's gone terribly wrong. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid and I hid. Something's changed. It's not the character of God. James tells us in James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift, it's from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And you know what he's like? There's no variation or shadow due to change in him. Our hiddenness is not only an instinct, but it's also actually an impossibility, I'm happy to say. 
Verse eight, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but not really. We can't hide from God. Maybe you've seen a little child playing hide and seek with her dad who will cover her eyes while she's standing in plain sight, right? Because developmentally, she's told a stage where she reasons that if she can't see him, then he can't see her. So God says in Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Or the author of the Hebrews reminds us, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Our hiddenness is an instinct. It's also an impossibility. And the good news is that our passage reminds us that our hiddenness is no match for God's pursuing presence. And his pursuit is kind. Verse 9, where are you? Where are you is actually a pretty gentle and gracious question directed to two people God knows just broke the universe. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man, even as he's hiding. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson has famously written, we're all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? We've come to a God who sees us, even in our futile attempts to hide ourselves from him, and he still moves towards us. He still calls to us. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of what can sometimes feel like a noble rejection of God's invitations because we're so aware of our unworthiness, he comes close anyway. He draws near. And he draws near with a very particular purpose. He draws near to draw us into confession and repentance. It's a commonly accepted saying that the cover-up is worse than the crime. (laughs) Stories like Watergate and Enron might come to mind. This week I read several articles by PR firms and law firms pleading with their staff and with their clients to not take an initial mistake or intentional wrongdoing and make it way worse by trying to cover it up. The cover-up's always worse than the crime. So God's drawing near to us in our hiddenness. Verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked. The nakedness of shame tempts us to cover our sin, which inevitably leads us into more sin. So God's pursuit is designed in part to keep us from a cover-up even worse than the crime. And we understandably cover up in part because we've given up hope. Without hope of rescue, all that's left is the cover-up. There's a sense in which we deny because we don't think there's grace. But God's kind, not only to bring his pursuing presence to our hiddenness, but he also comes with promises for our hopelessness. Look again at verses 11 through 19. In spite of our hopelessness, God brings his promises to us. And I say hopelessness because hopelessness is the chronic condition of the modern soul. But what's even sadder about that reality is that most of us have lost any meaningful explanation as to why. But Genesis 3 is clear. Our hopelessness is a byproduct of our sin. Now, sin's a problematic word. It's a word that's come to mean everything and nothing. It's a word with 
hyper-religious associations for a lot of people, depending on how you were raised or what kind of sermons you had to sit through as a kid. It's a word, unfortunately, that seems to be used culturally more like a weapon to attack people we don't like than a mirror with which to look honestly at ourselves. But it's meant to mostly be a mirror. So here in verse 11, God puts sin on the table. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And here's the problem. If you don't have a category for moral evil, then you're going to go through life constantly unable to understand pretty much everything around you, including yourself. If you don't have a category for moral evil, you're going to have a really hard time understanding everything around you, including yourself. God only gave them one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which gives access to God-like wisdom and which ought not to be grasped for in a way that cuts off relationship for ourselves as dependent beings from our creator. Don't eat from this tree. I've graciously established this limit and boundary for you out of my love and wisdom because I'm God and you're not. And you flourish best when you function like a creature rather than like someone who forgets they're a creature and tries to de-God God and make themselves over in his image. So God asks, verse 13, what is this that you have done? Now it's important for us to remember that God's not losing his temper here like some exhausted parent whose kid just broke something expensive. Right? To picture God as irritable is ultimately blasphemous and a disappointing imitation of reality. His grief and his anger are perfectly good and pure. Scripture, in describing God, can say quite simply, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Period, full stop. But nowhere does Scripture simply say, God is wrath. God's wrath is awakened by evil. His anger is just, and it comes against sin, but it's not inherent or ever-present in his being. In the absence of rebellion and evil, there's no wrath to be found. His just anger wakes up and is a response to and a byproduct of his love and his wisdom and his goodness. He's not irritated. He's angry because he's good. He's heartbroken because he's infinitely wise. He's offended because the sin against God is like a drunk spitting in the face of a little girl. We react viscerally to that image as we should because it's a horrible and an undeserved offense against something true and good and pure and beautiful. This is what it is to sin against the goodness and the beauty of God. He knows that the consequences they've set in motion through their rebellion are going to be catastrophic. What is this, he asks, verse 13, that you've done? But our hopelessness isn't just a byproduct of our sin. We also see that it brings a pattern of blame. Our hopelessness brings a pattern of blame In verse 12, all Adam needs to say to God's simple and straightforward question is, I ate the fruit. God's question is there to invite confession and repentance. But notice what Adam does. He tries to step out of the frame of the picture. He tries to slip away from his responsibilities and leave other people holding the bag. She gave me fruit of the tree. And worse, God, you gave her to be with me. All of a sudden, Adam, who is 
lapsing into bad poetry, talking about this woman that God gave him just a chapter or two before, is now calling her the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's dismissing her and he's distancing her all at the same time. Now it's interesting to note that Eve does a much better job than Adam. In verse 13 she answers, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Her answer is lacking Adam's unjust accusation of God, the woman you gave me. She doesn't say, the serpent you made. And on top of that, she freely admits that she was deceived. Now, some of you may be wondering, if you weren't raised in church or haven't been around the Bible, who the serpent is that Eve is referring to. We get a good description of him in Revelation 12, 19. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. Notice, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Just like Adam and Eve are about to be banished from their garden home with God, Satan, formerly a good creation of God's, was also banished from the presence of God because of his rebellion and his attempt to de-God God. He's a fallen angelic being. He's not the yang to God's yin. <laughs> He's not in the octagon with God eternally wrestling. He's a created being. There are limits to the damage he can do. And scripture's repeatedly encouraging us that someday soon God's gonna lock him up and throw away the key for good. But in the meantime, Peter warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Whether or not you know you have an enemy, you do. And he wants to eat you. But lest we become overly fixated on the enemy or paranoid, John brings these comforting words in 1 John 4. Little children, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You're safe. Don't be naive. Don't be paranoid either. (laughs) He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All of us, just like Adam, when we tend to feel shame, tend to blame God and blame other people. And sure, Eve's an influence on him. The serpent exercise influence sure he's surrounded by voices of misleading counsel these powerful forces exerting pressure on him and counseling him and tempting him and yet at the end of the day the devil didn't make him do it eve certainly didn't make him do it our circumstances are always deeply significant for the quality of our response but they don't determine our response this is why the author of proverbs can say When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. (laughs) When our own folly brings our way to ruin, there's this bizarre thing we do where we get mad at God. (laughs) This is why James can remind us in James 1, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. This is how temptation works. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed, notice, by his own desire. And the desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Our hopelessness not only brings us into a pattern of blame, but it also brings the fallout of broken relationships. Broken relationships with each other. Broken relationships with our world and our work. Verse 16 describes broken relationships with each other. It's a difficult verse to interpret 
Some translations like the ESV render it, your desire shall be for your husband. Others render it, you will want to control your husband. We don't have time to go into it here, but verse 16 may be describing a struggle to dominate each other in marriage post-fall, or it might be describing the vulnerability that women will experience because of an innate instinct to bring life into the world. But either way, relationships are going to become filled with brokenness and tension, God warns them. Not only broken relationships with each other, but a broken relationship to our work. So God can say to Adam in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. I always wondered what God's exact purposes in cursing the ground were. We get a glimpse of some of it in Paul's words in Romans 8. Notice what he says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it, notice, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What Paul's saying is the punishment is not the whole point. Rather, the punishment is meant to point to God's purposes in redemption. God doesn't want them to bow their heads in shame as they dig in the ground, but to look up in hope of rescue. And the heaviness of the burden that God's going to lay on Adam's back is actually designed to remind him that he's not home yet. And that life without God is always ultimately empty, no matter how much success you may experience. But good news, our hopelessness is no match for God's promises. Our hopelessness is no match for God's promises. Verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first glint of a preview, of a hint, of an announcement that Jesus is coming. The snake crusher. 1 John 3, 8, John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. In fact, the whole reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 15, when God says to the serpent, your offspring, he's referring to fallen humanity as they're going to continue to align with the father of lies against God. And also there in verse 15, when God talks about her offspring, Adam and Eve don't know precisely what God's describing or how he's going to pull it off. And that's not surprising. This is a process of unfolding revelation from God throughout the narrative of Scripture. And if you think about the incarnation, it's easily the most astonishing thing to ever happen in human history. And they could never have guessed that God would do something so miraculous, so mind-bending, so costly to himself as taking on flesh. Jesus, 100% God, and yet somehow, astonishingly, paradoxically, 100% man. God entering into our humanity precisely for the purpose of exploding our prison from the inside. Born as a vulnerable baby, dependent on his mother just to survive in his humanity. Growing up into a man full of grace and truth and then finishing obedient to the point of death. A death in our place, taking the punishment we deserved. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, famously describes it like this. The essence of sin 
is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God graciously, kindly, counterintuitively puts himself where we deserve to be. This is why the author to the Hebrews can say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This is why Paul, in concluding his epic letter to the church in Rome, can end with these ringing words, The God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under all your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. I'm out. What an ending to a letter. Hey guys, I know life is hard. I know you're experiencing persecution. But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Don't forget. Walk in the grace and the hope that that truth is bringing to you. Paul's saying, don't forget that you're not home yet. Don't forget that the full effect of Jesus' complete and cosmic victory is still being worked out. So you're going to have to wait patiently. Don't forget that the brokenness inside you and the brokenness you see all around you doesn't mean that God has failed. It just means that he's not finished yet. We're not home yet, Paul's saying. Life in exile is hard. We feel unsettled and unsafe, just like Adam and Eve when they were turned out of their garden home. But fortunately, not only does God bring his promises in spite of our hopelessness, but he also brings his protection in spite of our homelessness. We're in exile. We're without our true home. We're wandering in the world, waiting to be brought back. And that's a vulnerable, scary place to live, but he brings his protection to us. He's kind. Look again at verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The good news is that our homelessness doesn't have to equal hopelessness. We've already seen Adam embracing the promise and rejecting despair when the dust is barely settled on him breaking the universe by naming his wife Eve. Verse 20, so Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was or would become the mother of all living. And he called her that, some of you may have a note in your Bible, because Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver and resembles the word for living. This is a foreshadowing of how Throughout the Bible, taking God at his word when he promises to rescue us is always the first step in our rescue. Scholar Bruce Walkie says, Adam's naming of Eve is the beginning of hope. Adam shows his restoration to God by believing the promise that the faithful woman will bear offspring that will defeat Satan. Our homelessness doesn't have to equal hopelessness. And the good news is that our homelessness makes us exiles, but it doesn't have to make us orphans. They're in the wind. They're without a home. 
but they're not sent out without God first equipping them for the journey and covering their shame. Eve's been graciously renamed, and now, verse 21, they're being graciously reclothed. As proof of his kindness, God covers them with animal skins. And verse 7 describes for us their prior pitiful attempt at covering their own shame. Notice, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 7 shows us that their self-made coverings are small and temporary and adequate. But here in verse 21, God clothes them adequately, completely, lastingly. And it reminds me so much of our culture self-help literature. All these books promising that you can cover your own shame if you just face it boldly and change the way you think about it. But in the biblical account, it's only when we humble ourselves and submit to God's gracious care that God himself is able to come and cover our shame precisely because he knows we can't do it ourselves. The good news is that our homelessness isn't just punishment, it's actually also a loving act of preservation. God's not gonna let the cement dry on our sin. He's gonna protect us by making sure temporary destruction doesn't turn into permanent damnation. Verse 22, lest he live forever. It's likely here that God's hinting at the reality that in order to keep humankind from being sealed in the rebellion like Satan, he's going to introduce physical death. God wants to keep the light on and the key under the mat so that his rebel kids can find their way home again someday when he finally opens a way back for them. So he introduces the presence of mortality. And physical death is confusing and a bit complicated because it's both a curse and a blessing. Physical death brings a certain pointlessness to even the best of our accomplishments because at the end we all die. But physical death also spares us from being stuck under the curse forever. And even as we face death, we know that we still have the possibility of an eternal rescue and resurrection that will outlast the grave. Genesis 3 teaches us there are actually worse things than mortality. Satan has immortality with despair. But God's providing a way back for rebels. Satan has immortality with despair, and now we have immortality, but with the hope of redemption and resurrection, which is far better. So, what have we seen here in our text? Genesis 3 has taught us, in spite of our rebellion, God is kind. He's kind enough to pursue us when we're hiding. He's kind enough to promise rescue in our hopelessness. He's kind enough to protect us when we're in exile and homeless. And so the whole point of Genesis 3 is that precisely because of the profound kindness of God, we can celebrate Advent. Precisely because God is kind, we can wait and hope. But waiting is a funny kind of un-American activity, isn't it? It's a largely quiet activity. I was struck again this week by the language of Zephaniah 3 that describes God's love as a thing that actually quiets us. Zephaniah 3 says, God's love quiets us. Too many of us here today are not very quiet because we're still relating to God on the basis of anxious activity. We don't expect God to relate to us on the basis of grace. 
So we're often hopeless and anxious and restless. And the holiday season only spins those things up inside us even faster. Notice what an old American pastor of the 1800s, Archibald Alexander, says about the fallout of this kind of bootstrapping Ben Franklin view of God. And he says it's one of the many reasons that we fail to grow as Christians. Notice what he says. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. Christians are too much inclined to depend on themselves and not to derive their life entirely from Christ. The new convert lives upon his ever-shifting feelings rather than on Christ. While the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations of success, he becomes discouraged first and then he sinks into a gloomy despondency or becomes in a measure careless. And it's at that point, Alexander says, that the spirit of the world comes in with resistless force. Alexander says that when we struggle in our own self-reliant strength and fail, we get discouraged. And then we tend to sink into a gloomy despondency or we become spiritually careless. If we can't win with God, why try? And then Alexander says the spirit of the world rushes in with resistless force. As you're standing on the brink of this holiday season, take yourself in hand and consider how the spirit of the world might try and rush in with resistless force into your home. Consider this holiday season how you might fight a gloomy despondency and a spiritual carelessness. Maybe you're going to lose your temper at your kids and then feel shame but not apologize to them. Or maybe you'll brace yourself for that critical comment from a relative. And when it doesn't come, you'll respond defensively and irritably anyway, even though you know deep down it's wrong. Maybe you'll spend more time tracking down presents than connecting with the ones you love. And you'll notice that it's happening, but you'll resent it if your spouse points it out. <laughs> or maybe you'll isolate yourself and unfairly test the love of your friends by seeing if anybody calls. And then if they don't, you'll nurse quiet bitterness and resentment against them. Maybe you'll look at the balance in your checking account and then give God a piece of your mind because in your mind you've been a good Christian this year. And yet you still don't have money to give your kids the kind of Christmas you wished you had when you were growing up. Or maybe you're going to get called in to work on the weekend a couple times this month. And instead of reminding yourself what a blessing it is to have a job, you'll grumble at God and convince yourself that it's your boss's fault that your heart isn't more centered on Christ this season. Maybe you'll be so frustrated at your family for all the ways they let you down that you'll have so little grace or appreciation for anything redemptive or kind that they do. Maybe you'll turn to hidden sin and convince yourself it's the holidays in both a physical and a spiritual sense. And you'll tell yourself you'll find someone to confess to once January rolls around, but you'd just be bothering him if you reached out for help now. Aren't all these stories really just different ways of tasting disappointment and feeling shame, just like our first parents? Thorns and thistles, it'll bring forth for you. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. But the good news for us is that right in the middle of all the messiness inside us 
all the disappointment around us, everyone in this room is invited into the season of Advent, invited to wait and hope, to observe an intentional season of being quieted by God's love in Christ, undeserved and unearned. This is why Isaac Watts could write in 1719, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, fear of punishment always gets our attention, just like it got Adam and Eve's attention. But it's the prospect of being received with kindness that will actually melt our hearts. Church historian Claire Davis has wisely said, we repent because we know there's grace. Once we realize that God covers our shame with kindness, we'll find ourselves filled with fresh hope. We'll find ourselves quieted by the confident expectation that he's coming to finish the good work that he's already started in us. We'll also find ourselves quicker to repent and admit when we've failed because it's not as important for us anymore to think of ourselves as good people. We'll find ourselves feeling increasingly safe in his love. But God shows his love for us, Paul says, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ suffered for our sins, Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're invited to wait and hope. Here's something simple you can do to observe this season. Go find four candles. <laughs> Sit down together with roommates, friends, or family each night. Each week, light an additional candle and read an Advent devotional. If you don't have one or you don't even know what that is, come talk to me. I'll help you find one. Then go around and share one thing that you can say thank you to Jesus for that day. And one thing that's hard that you need to say help to Jesus for that day. And then wrap it all up by singing a hymn or a doxology. And for a few quiet moments, mark and remember the hope that we have in the season of Advent. Take time this month to meditate on passages like these and learn to pray them back to God in your own words. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken it'll be said on that day behold this is our god we've waited for him that he might save us this is the lord we've waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation take time to pause in moments between the last thing and the next thing and consciously invite god to quiet you with his love invite him into all those hopeless places in your own heart this holiday season those places of shame and embarrassment and inadequacy. Invite him into all those disappointing places in your world and in your relationships. Ask him. Ask him boldly to bring his presence to bless and repair and redeem all that's been broken. Because Genesis 3 has proved to us that that's what he's been quietly and unstoppably doing all along. Stand with me as we pray. Lord, we stand here today quieted by your love. 
We stand here today a little bit more willing to repent because we know there's grace. (laughs) But some of us here today are still finding it hard to believe that you're kind. We're made in your image, but that image has been slashed and marred. It's hard to pick out a resemblance. It's hard to believe you're really good. So Lord, meet us in those places of unbelief. Protect us from an even deeper spiral into shame as we convince ourselves that we're the only ones in the room that can't really believe this is true. Help our unbelief. Replace despair and hopelessness with faith, hope, love, joy, and peace. I pray even as we come to the table that your spirit would meet us in tangible ways that we couldn't deny even if we can't explain them. That you give us a taste experientially of your love and your kindness for us. In Jesus, we pray. Amen.